Almighty Father in heaven, you are worthy of all honor and praise and glory. Praise your holy name from this time and forever. Father, you have called us to come. And we come this morning not convinced of our own righteousness, but instead of our rebellion and our disobedience, we wander from place to place, longing for our soul's joy and satisfaction to be found in so many empty trinkets instead of resting in your secure refuge and abiding dwelling place that you have provided for us, that we might feast upon your precious gifts that come from your hand. Lord, I pray that you will turn us to Christ this morning by faith and in repentance. Grant us hearts that long for you, long for your dwelling place, your provision, your protection. May our hearts abandon our own self-made place of refuge. May our hearts abandon our own empty provisions. May our hearts abandon our foolish assumption that we are providing our own protection. And instead, Father, I pray that you'll grant us and give us faith in Christ. Faith in Christ that might bring us near by the blood of Jesus Christ that we might find in him our perfect and abiding dwelling place, provision, and protection. We ask, Father, that you'll do these things for your namesake. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. I just want to read this verse to, to start us out of the blocks of our passage in Exodus 24. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you who once were far off have been brought near. And how have you been brought near? According to Ephesians 2.13, you who were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. And so this morning, the message that we're going to be looking at as, uh, as the Lord is wrapping up what we understand as the Book of the Covenant, we're going to be looking at the end, or uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 24, which is almost the end of a sex, second major section in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapters 1 through 18, God was showing himself as one who delivers. And then in the second major section of Exodus, Exodus chapters 19 through 24, which is where we're at the end of now, we're looking at God who is a demanding God, a God who is speaking his commandments and demanding his people to be who they are to be. So God who delivers, chapters 1 through 18, God who is demanding his people to live in a certain way, verse chapters 19 through 24, chapters 19 through 24. And then, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the third major section of the book of Exodus, 
And the final section of Exodus, chapters 25 through 40, we're going to be looking at a God who dwells with his people. So a God who delivers, chapters 1 through 18, a God who demands, chapters 19 through 24, and then a God who dwells with his people, chapters 25 through 40. Why do I mention the big overarching outline of Exodus? Because what the Lord is doing here is he saying, now that I've given given you your commandments, they aren't just a to-do list for you to get up every morning and kind of get to and start doing. The Lord's saying, these demands, these commandments are so that you will be a people who dwell with me. And so the Lord isn't the, the heading for the understanding, my heading for Exodus, for the sermons through Exodus, is a God who... Who, who delivers his people out of, out of Egypt so that they might dwell with him. Out of Egypt, that we might dwell with the Lord. And that's the transition that's being taking place, as we'll see this morning in chapter 24. The Lord has gotten finished now with all of these lists of commands and duties and demands, and it can feel like a heavy weight on our shoulders, and yet the Lord is now reminding his people, I'm not doing this to give you a burden. I'm doing this so that you might dwell with me. There to be a holy people, a people that are set apart for God's glory, a people that display his character. And the Lord says, you will walk with me, you'll dwell with me. And so how is this going to be done? What we find in our Bibles here and in various other places in our Bible is that the way the Lord draws his people to himself, the way the Lord relates to us is through this concept, through this term that we're going to see this morning, and it's through covenant. It's through covenant. It is when the Lord enters into an agreement with his people and he says, these are the terms and the qualifications of how you will relate with me and I will relate with you. And he establishes a covenant that they may be able to come near to him. This morning we're going to be looking at this covenant, this, this drawing near to God by his people and God drawing near to them. Uh, And we're going to see it in three categories and three points this morning. Point number one, the Lord's call. Point number two, the Lord's covenant. Point number three, the Lord's glory. Now let me give you the fuller points. The Lord's call summoned, verses one through two. The Lord's covenant confirmed, Verses 3 through 8. And the Lord's glory revealed. Verses 9 through 11. The call summoned. Verses 1 through 2. The covenant confirmed. Verses 3 through 8. The glory revealed. Verses 9 through 11. So we begin this morning as we look at our text together. Notice with me in chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. The Lord is, is calling. He's summoning his people to come to him. And as Mike mentioned, it's very helpful for us when we see these pronouns. Then he said to Moses, well, who's, who's speaking to Moses? It is the Lord himself. And he's been speaking to Moses for a very long time now. And we see here that the Lord is speaking to Moses. And what does he call Moses to do? He says, come up to the Lord. He says, come up to the Lord. In other words, the Lord is wanting to relate to not only Moses, but we see here, to his people. 
So it says in verse 1, Come up to the Lord, you, Moses, and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. So all of this group of people are heading up to see the Lord, to come up and see the Lord. However, what we find here in this call or summons by God is that there is distinctions. There are distinctions between these different groups of people on how close in way of proximity that they are able to get to the Lord. So he's calling not only Moses, but also Aaron and his sons and these 70 elders. He's calling them up, and he's saying he's calling them up for a purpose. And that purpose at the end of verse 1 is that they may worship from afar, from a distance. We see first these names, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Aaron's the father. He's going to become the father of the priesthood, the priestly tribe. They're going to be the ones that are um, basically assisting God's people in way of their worship. Nadab and Abihu are the sons of Aaron. They're not, they don't have a very good storyline. What we find is that actually in Leviticus chapter 2, no, Leviticus chapter 10, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 10, they are um, they're wicked sons. They actually come to the Lord with a variant um, kind of worship, a self-imagined worship. They bring to the Lord a, a strange fire. And because of that, the Lord kills both of them. So their story ends in Leviticus chapter 10. But Aaron and his family are represented here. They're not yet priests as of yet. That's going to happen only later in Exodus. But they are those who will eventually become priests. And so the Lord said, come up and bring Aaron, bring his two sons. And then also bring the 70 of the elders. And these 70 elders were representative of all of God's people. Um, there were 70 people who came um, out of the promised land and were coming into Egypt. And so the representative number of all of God's people are these 70 elders. And they were coming with Moses and with Aaron and his sons. And so these, um, these three, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, were able to come up, but they were to worship, and the seventy elders were to worship the Lord from a distance. Notice, however, the distinction that's made in verse 2 where it says, Moses alone shall come near. Do you see the difference between worshiping from afar and then in verse 2, this Moses who is a singular in his authority and in his ability, he alone is to come before the Lord. And to draw near to the Lord, it says in verse 2. So we have um, the 70 elders. And we have Aaron with them. They're going to make their way partially up the mountain. And then we find that Moses is able to actually go to the closest place with God, which is closer to the top of the mountain, near the top of the mountain, where he'll be close to the Lord. But then it says in verse 2, But the others shall not come near. In other words, the elders um, and uh, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. They should not come near to the Lord, but they're going to come only halfway up the mountain. And then finally, he speaks of all the other people. Do you recognize that there's actually millions and millions of other Israelites that are not part of the 70 or part of Moses, part of this group that's going up the mountain? And that's the people that's being spoken of there at the end of verse 2. And the people shall not come up with him. And so they're going to be at the foot of the mountain, observing all these things. The point here is the distinctions of proximity. The the crowds or the mass number of Israelites will be at the foot of the mountain, able to worship the Lord, but not as close. 
We have this number of 70 elders with Aaron and Moses, and they're going to go up halfway the mountain, and then Moses will continue, and he'll actually be able to be the nearest to the Lord. All of this is establishing for God's people the idea that any and everybody can't just kind of mosey into God's presence. That coming into God's presence isn't something that they should take lightly or flippantly. In fact, this is establishing the distinctions as they approach what we're going to find in chapter 25, which is the building of the tabernacle. And in the building of the tabernacle, they're going to find that there's an outer court where all the people will reside. There's an inner court where the priest will be able to have or be able to go into and to um, be able to attend and, and, and they'll be able to go into the inner court. And then there's the tabernacle, which only a select number of people will be able to go into the very tabernacle and to be able to offer those sacrifices. And then there's a holy of holies in the very, very center that only the high priest is able to go into. And the point here is this, is that unlike our thinking so often, we, we can't, any and everybody just can't mosey into God's presence. That was true then, and it's true now. We, we do not have uninterrupted, unhindered, free access to God on our own. That is, that is a wrong thinking. Many of us assume that because of our teaching. And yet, what we find, and really the point of verses 1 and 2 is this. What's most clear about all of this in verses 1 and 2 is that there is a singular person who is the mediator for God's people. The one who is closest to God, the one who's on the top of the mountain, the one who is by himself in way of authority and ability is Moses, verse 2. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. Everybody else is going to be at a distance. The people needed to understand that Moses had the, had the access to the Lord that others did not. That God's people did not have an absolute, free, unhindered access to the Lord. Moses was the one who was to be their mediator. None were able to come into his presence. None were able to approach the top of this fearful mountain except Moses alone. And I think it's not difficult for us today to see that we too need to realize that the only way we have access to God is through a mediator, a better mediator than Moses. You see, when we come here this morning, it's not just me and God. It's us calling out to Christ that Christ may intercede for us. We have a mediator. We are not individuals who can simply stroll into the very presence and holiness of God. Jesus Christ is necessary. When we come to the Lord in the mornings, when we do our devotions and read our Bible, and we pray to our Lord, we come to our Lord, how? In Jesus' name. The singular mediator of Jesus Christ is the way we approach our Father. We do not have God without Christ. Does that make sense? We see here this even in the New Testament, that we are not able to come into the presence of the Lord on our own, but instead one goes before the Father on our behalf. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, Therefore, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So let me, let me make the point hopefully sharply as well as very practically. 
Many of us this morning need to be reminded and reaffirmed about this. When we approach the Lord, whether in our prayers or in the mornings on Sunday worship or at any point in our lives, when we approach the Lord, we do so through Jesus Christ. What Jesus did for us allows us access to the Father. It is a frightening thing to seek to come before the Father without Jesus Christ as our mediator. Here we see that God's people were being taught that very thing as they were calling or as the Lord was summoning them, as calling them. They knew that they could not come simply up to the top of the mountain on their own. They came through Moses who was the mediator in our day and this new covenant that we are in the midst of as it speaks of in Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, meaning a new, this is the way we are to approach God and it is through Jesus Christ. And he alone is the one that we are able to approach God through. So the Lord was calling or summonsing his people. And he was reminding them that there's a distinction. There's only one who is the mediator who has that authority. Later, if you remember, um, some of the Aaron and even some of the other Israelites were beginning to question whether Moses was actually that, had that much authority. And they started pushing against them and said, well, wait a minute, who says you're the one that's going to be the mediator? Why, why can't we do this and why can't we do that? Why can't we make these decisions? The Lord punished them in that particular scenario. I would encourage you to read it. For not acknowledging the place that God placed Moses. How much more if we seek to have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Will our Lord say, you know, if, if, if there's only one way, right, to the Father, whereby men must be saved. And who is that? Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is no other way. All others do not have access to the Father. The second point I want us to notice this morning is the Lord's covenant confirmed. And this is really, this is going to be the longest portion of the sermon. The Lord's covenant confirmed. This is in verses 3 through 8 as we look at it here. And obviously it's the largest portion of text as well. I want us to see a little bit more in way of details concerning this covenant that the Lord is making with his people. As he says, I'm going to, I want you to come up to the Lord. And the Lord's saying, I want you to come to me. It's not, again, it's not a stroll in the park. But there are stipulations, there are terms by which the Lord says, this is how you can approach me and not die. And so first I want you to see in verses 3 through 8 the covenant terms that are given to God's people. The covenant terms that are given. This is in verses 3 through 6. These are the covenant terms that are given. The stipulations of the covenant that the Lord is seeking to make and set forth. The Lord is the, Lord is the one who is the one who is establishing these terms. We see here in verses 3 through, um, three through 8 that it's not the people negotiating or bartering with the Lord and saying, you do this and we'll do this and back and forth. No, the Lord is setting out clearly, this is how you're going to approach me. We need to understand the Lord has the priority in our lives to relate to us as he wishes, not the other way around. And it's important for us to recognize as well that the Lord is not basing this upon their feelings or something he sees inside of them. Nowhere in our text does it say, you know what, I've looked into your heart and I see that you really yearn for me, so therefore I'm going to establish this covenant. That's a blessing. 
Instead, what the Lord is doing, instead of basing it upon our feelings or upon um, our instincts or upon our intentions, so many people today believe that the essence of their faith, the essence of their relating to God, has mostly to do with what's inside of them, their feelings and their intentions and their desires. What we find in Scripture over and over again is that what is inside of us will, will, will deceive us every time. What the Lord gives his people here in verses 3 through 6 are very visible, tangible objects to look upon with their eyes and see that this is God who's relating to them. He isn't giving them and saying, you know what, I'm going to give you a feeling. And when you have that feeling, then you're close to me. No. But instead he gives them four very real, very visible, tangible objects that are going to picture this covenant concept for his people. And these four objects are these. First, he's going to give them his word. Second, he's going to give him the altar. Thirdly, he's going to give them offerings. And fourthly, he's going to give them blood. These are four objects that are tangible and able to be seen by God's people. Again, I want to underscore the fact that these are not feelings or assumptions or a general sense that they have for God. Their covenant with God is established, as God has established it, upon things that are outside of them. Outside of them. This is good news. This is good news. This means that your relationship with the Lord has nothing to do with how you feel this morning. That's glorious. It has everything to do with what God has done on our behalf. We need to understand again, brothers and sisters, that we work with, we have co-workers and family members and loved ones and people that are around us that are convinced that our relationship with God has more to do with what's inside of us than what's outside of us. And we as God's people need to be insistent that the word of God is the basis for our relationship with God. What he says about himself and what he tells us is more important than what we feel so here we find four tangible, real objects that the Lord says, I want you to look to these and place your faith on, in me. Notice that first he gives them these words. Verse 3 says, Moses came. Now that the Lord says, come up to the Lord, Moses is going to come nearest. The others are going to be from afar in different distinctions. Verse 3 Moses came and told the people of people all the words of the Lord. Hear that word all? That's from, as, um, as Mike mentioned earlier, that's from chapter 20, um, verse 22. All of these words, all of the words of the Lord, it says in verse 3, and all the rules. So the commands and the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said. So we've got all of the commands, all of the rules. Moses is telling them all of these. And then all the people answer with one voice. And what do they say in verse 3? They say, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now, why am I emphasizing the all? Because covenants are never partial. It's, it's all or nothing give you an example of a modern-day covenant. When we get married, when marriage takes place, 
There's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And when that covenant is made, I've never done a wedding, and I refuse to do a wedding for a couple that says, we're going to covenant together for 364 days of the year. There's one day of mayhem. There's one day that I can do whatever I want. There's one day of unfaithfulness that I'm going to commit to. But listen, you've got it really good. 364 days out of the year, I'm going to be completely and absolutely faithful. How good is that covenant? It's worthless. It's worthless. In other words, that one day of faithlessness makes us, in our marriage, what? Faithless. It makes us faithless. We can, be, we can be true and faithful for 364 days. One day of faithlessness makes us faithless. And so the emphasis in this covenant, as we see in all covenants, is that God gave them all of his commandments, and he required from them absolute and all faithfulness. Absolute faithfulness. Without one rule being broken. And they agreed. They agreed. Now, it's interesting because the Lord gave them this. The Lord came and told the people, verse 3, all the words of the Lord. And then they answered in one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Okay? Now, how impossible would it have been four weeks later? I can almost say three days later. But two or three days later, a couple of weeks later... Everybody out that were Israelites beside that mountain was saying, yeah, but he said this. No, no, I think he said this. Well, I thought he said that. Well, isn't it this that we're supposed to be doing? I'm not sure. Let's go and talk to some other people. And before we know it, we have all kinds of different ideas of what they thought the Lord would want them to do. What did Moses do in his kindness and in grace? He gave them something objective instead of subjective. So in verse 4 it says, And Moses, after they made the commitment, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. In other words, they have a record. They have something that's permanent and accurate to base what, how they're to live upon. They're able to go back and see what was it that the Lord wanted them to do. It's no different today. And how easy it is for our own hearts not to want to go back to the Word of God and find out what the Word of God says, but instead say that the the things of the Lord are changing and variant and we can interpret them in different ways and we we can understand them in all kinds of various ways. Or is it that God has given us His Word that we might come back to it and say, what is it that God wants us to do? And we can read it and know that this is a standard that's outside of our feelings. And thank the Lord outside of our culture that seeks to define the emphasis, not only for our own lives, but for the church in so, kind, so many different various kinds of ways. So what was the first thing that the Lord gave his people that they were to place their faith on, that they were to, in way of coveting with his people, he says, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you something objective. I'm going to give you my words. And it wasn't just the speech that Moses gave, but he says, I'm going to write these down so that you can return to these. Now, these are not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments we're going to find were etched on stone, and they were put into the Ark of the Covenant. These are actually chapter 21, verse 22, and all the way to the end of chapter 24 are the words that were written down for the people to have an understanding as Israelites of how they are to live as a nation. So object number one was the word. 
so they may live by the word as a foundation instead of by their thoughts and assumptions. Object number two is this altar. Is this altar. Notice it says that after Moses wrote down these words, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord in verse 4, and then it says, and it speaks of the, the urgency and the significance of this altar in verse 4 when it says, he rose up early in the morning. In other words, it was, a, it was a, a priority one issue for him as he rose up the next morning that not only did he finish writing all these words, but then secondly, he rose up early in the morning and he built an altar. He built an altar, and notice where he built this altar. This altar, by the way, all over the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis and Exodus, is a place where people meet with God. It's the place where people go to meet with God. And it says here that this place, this altar, was built at the foot of the mountain. And so what we find is that this altar was at the foot of the mountain, and it was the place where in order for them to go up the mountain or to get to God, where God was, was at the top of this mountain, in order for them to, 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 under, to get toward God or closer to God, what did they have to go through? They had to go through this altar. Okay? Now let, let me back up for just a minute and say this just as an aside. You'll get this for free. When sanctuaries and churches were built in the old days. Today, it's absolutely ruined. Nobody can put things together for some reason. But there was a reason why the sanctuaries looked the way they did um, as they were built throughout history of the church. There was the people of God in the congregation. There was the table. And what do we do on the table? We have the Lord's Supper where Christ's blood was shed and his body was broken. That's our altar, if you will. Different in the New Covenant, but nonetheless an altar. And then we have the pulpit, where God and who he is is proclaimed. Do you see how even the imagery of our sanctuaries give a picture of this very idea? And today, sadly, too often, in congregations, the pulpit is set over on the side. Um, and that's, that's a theological action that the word of God is set to the side in, the in sanctuaries. And too often, there's all kinds of things that are placed up front and center. So, just as an aside, they were to arrange this altar in such a way as it was to be the place where in order for them to get to this mountain and to go up this mountain in any way, they were to go through this altar that was the place where God showed himself to be present. This altar was very important. It was not something that you would approach casually or informally. It was not an, uh, an easygoing kind of thing, which too often in our own hearts and minds today, we think of God as being kind of this um, daddy in the sky. We're very light and trite with our understanding of who God is. This is foreign, and I would say even contrary to our biblical understanding of God. Now, is our God approachable? Yes, through the gruesome death of Jesus Christ. And you see how so often we forget that in order for us to approach our maker and creator in his holiness and righteousness, in his transcendence, we must have a mediator. And that mediator can't just be our mom and dad. It must be one who has gone into the very presence of God and has shed his blood on our behalf. So this altar isn't something that they go to and tinker around with or are careless with, but instead it's a very urgent and serious matter. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 90, verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Hebrews 10.31 says, It is fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We can see that this significant urgency of this building of the altar, to, to get this altar between the mountain and God's people. This altar was to be built in such a way as to include all the Israelites to represent that it is God's people who are coming before, his, before this God. So notice what it says. Is it says he rose up early to build this altar at the foot of the mountain, and then it gives us a description of what this altar looks like. It says this, And twelve pillars were to be built, that's this altar. More than likely, these pillars, we think of big, huge pillars, but more than likely they were stacks of stone about waist high. Each one of the pillars were to be representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you see that there in verse 4? So the 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel, were to be a circle of pillars that created this altar where God's people, all the whole of Israel, 12 tribes, would then approach God. It was very carefully ordered and orchestrated, very carefully placed, very carefully built It wasn't something they were just throwing together, in other words. And Moses was at the very center of that, doing it the way God had told him to. The third item or object that we see here is not only the altar, but naturally and obviously what comes out of that altar or what comes from that altar is these offerings that are being made. Notice that it says in verse 5, And he sent young men of the people of Israel. Now, who are these young men? More than likely, most say that these were actually the firstborn from each family. So if you're thinking about one or two oxen or maybe a dozen or 20 oxen being slaughtered for the sacrifice, you have a wrong image. We have millions of people, hundreds of thousands of families that are bringing their oxen and the blood of all of those animals are being spilt. This is a bloodbath. This is not a Sunday school lesson. This is, this is horror as not only the price of these animals are being slaughtered. Why? Because God is seeking to relate to them. But there's a massive amount of blood being spilt as these offerings are being made. So it speaks here of the fact that he sent young men, more than likely firstborn from each family, young men of the people of Israel, and each one of these offered two things, burnt offerings, it says, and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Do you see this? The burnt offering pointed to the cost that was required to approach God. The burnt offering was the most costly of all the offerings. Why? Because this offering basically took an ox or any other animal, cut it in two on the altar, spilled its blood, and then the carcass was to be completely and absolutely burnt up. It was to be so, so burnt up that it was no longer usable anymore. In other words, it was totally and absolutely given to God. There was nothing they could do with it after they were done with the burnt offering, or that's what was supposed to be done. And so it was a very costly event. The whole animal that they had would be burned completely. This was to speak of the price, the cost that it would require in order for them to approach their God. And secondly, which is, let me back up and just say this. Isn't it interesting that back, do you remember back when they were leaving, Exod- leaving Egypt? And Pharaoh came and said, okay, okay, you guys can go, but leave your animals here. Do you remember that? 
And Moses says, well, we can't leave our animals here. And he says, why? He says, because we've, we're supposed to be going out in the wilderness to worship. Well, why can't you leave some of your animals here? No, because they're gods. And we need to, the reason we're going out into the wilderness is to worship. And so they've been feeding and caring for and tending to all of these animals for all of this time through the wilderness. Only now, Lord, this doesn't make sense. Why are you letting us just butcher them now? Because that's the whole point of them being in the wilderness. God is the point. And prioritizing God with your things is the point. So the burnt offering was a costly offering. To approach God. And then we have here, it says here the, um, in verse, four, uh, verse 5, and sacrificed a peace offering. Now the peace offering was an interesting offering. It was actually considered a fellowship or a communion offering. The animal would be slaughtered and cut in two. The entrails would be burned on the altar. And the actual meat of the animal would be cooked. And then after that, the people would actually eat of that. Those who had the sacrifice, the peace sacrifice, they would actually eat of that animal. And the point there is this, is that they are communing with the Lord. They're fellowshipping with the Lord as the Lord has provided for them. And eating meat um, during this day wasn't like our eating meat. This was, a, this was a feast. This was a rarity for them to have meat and to be able to eat this feast to show that God's going to lavish his care and protection and provision upon them. And that the Lord seeks to have fellowship and communion with them in this way. So these two offerings then, let me bring them together, clearly picture to God's people or for God's people both the price and the fellowship that the Lord is providing for his people. The price and the fellowship that the Lord is providing for his people. And so these are the offerings. And then fourthly and finally, we cannot overlook nor ignore the real emphasis of our passage concerning the very object of their faith and of this covenant is the blood. The blood of these offerings. It says in verse 6, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Most understand this when we have a hard idea, hard frame of reference here they weren't five gallon buckets they were more than likely um, large metal-like discs they were like really big head hubcaps that were shallow but large and they were filling these up with blood and so half of the blood from all of these sacrifices both the peace and the burnt offerings was going into basins and Moses took half of the blood and put it in these basins these large dishes these large pans. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. He threw against the altar. The point here is that this blood was the legal confirmation that God was going to do his part of the covenant. In other words, this blood being thrown against the altar, which is where God's presence was supposed to be residing, where they were to be coming into the presence of the Lord, this altar, this was a seal and a guarantee that God was going to uphold his side of the covenant. In other words, he would be with his people. And so this is why the blood was thrown against the altar. It was to confirm and establish God's end of this covenant, God's side of this covenant, that God will indeed be their God and that he will forgive his people and that he'll purify his people so that they can come into his presence. This is what God is saying. This is exactly how the author to the book of Hebrews understood this blood. As he's remarking about this very event in Hebrews chapter 9, 
He speaks of the purification and forgiveness that's given only through blood, both in the Old Testament and in the New. And the author of Hebrews says this, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. In other words, the first covenant being in the Old Testament, the first covenant. But then it goes on in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, and it says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified, how? With blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness of sins. And so this blood was thrown onto the altar. Now, these are the terms that the Lord has given to his people. Let's turn now and look at verses 7 through 8 and see what the people do with these terms. It seems odd because verses 7 and 8 seem to be repeating what was taking place earlier in verses 3 and 4. Where the, Moses wrote down these words and he, and he actually he spoke all these words and then the people say in verse 3, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then we see that very same thing happening again down in verse 7. So notice with me in verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant. That's chapter 20. They didn't have chapters and verse numbers. But for us, as we look at it, it's chapter 20, verse 21 through chapters 24. He took this book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. I don't want to, over, I don't want to, I don't want to miss that. Could it be that God's people from the very beginning sat and listened to large portions of Scripture being read to them? And could it be that the Lord knew that was wise and good? Chapter 9 is a long chapter, isn't it, of Hebrews? Rod, you read it beautifully. I wish I had the ability to read as, as clearly. I feel like sometimes my voice is scratchy. Rod read it wonderfully for us this morning. God's people have throughout history been a people who have sat and listened to God's word being read at length in large portions. Because God knew it was good for them to hear his word. And brothers and sisters, our congregation comes here on Sunday and our children know that this book is important. You know why? Because we gather on Lord's Day and Mommy and Daddy and all these people that are around these children, they sit and they listen while somebody reads big portions of this book out of, out of, the, out of their Bible every week. And so even our children know that the Bible matters what it says. And it's, it's a testimony that... Who has the authority in our midst? God does. His word does. It's so very important because we live in a day and age where so many churches don't even take their Bibles to church anymore. And then the secular culture is attacking our kids when they go to college. And then the parents say, well, this is wrong and that's wrong. And the kids say, well, why is it wrong? They say, well, because the Bible says it is. And they say, well, that's your opinion. You think the Bible says it's wrong? we, we they, they hadn't been to church. They, they go to church every Sunday, but they never take their Bible. And when they do take their Bible, there's very little read. Why would they think the Bible is an authority? Here, God's people in chapter 24 knew that this word that was coming from God was their authority. Why? Because they sat and they listened to it. All the kids went to a nursery. No. It, kids were fidgeting and moving and trying to do things in Israel, on the side of that mountain, while Moses was reading, just like they were when Rod was reading a while ago in Hebrews chapter 9. And yet it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to sit and hear God's word being read. Now, that was my soapbox. Verse 7, they read it in the hearing of the people. And then all of God's people, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do, and we will be obedient. And we will be obedient. They heard all of this read, and now it was time for them to accept this. Now, we know that, in fact, God's people didn't obey. In fact, we only have to read two or three more chapters ahead and find out that they were not only disobedient, but brazen in their disobedience. Sometimes when you read further from this point, sometimes you think they might have a checklist of things that God told them to do, and they were going through and not doing them. I mean, it seems that way almost as you read through the rest of Exodus and into Leviticus and into Deuteronomy. They were not faithful. However, this response is the right one. You are not going to enter into a covenant and say, you know what, I'll try. You enter into a covenant saying, I will. I will. And so, when they said that they will do all that the Lord has spoken to them, and they will be obedient, Moses then confirms their commitment with blood. With blood. It says that when Moses made, or when the people made this commitment and said they will do all that was spoken, verse 8 says, And Moses took the blood that were in these basins that he was saving, half of it he threw on the ark, the other half, it says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. He threw it on the people. Now, let me, let me help us think here. Um, there wasn't oxyclean during this time. There wasn't washing machines. They didn't have another set of clothes for tomorrow. These people had blood-stained garments that they were going to walk around with for a very long time. And Moses was taking these large pans of, of blood that when it was drained, the life came out of these animals. And all of these men and women and children saw the life come out of all of these animals. And they knew that the life was in this blood. And Moses took these large pans and he washed God's people and said, this blood now is on you. You are to be diligent and devoted to keep all of God's commandments. You're to do this. This is your promise to do what God has called you to do it was their confirmation and Moses sealed it and established it and said not only is God going to do his side the blood on the ark but you are to do your part the blood on God's people this is exactly how Jesus talks about the Lord's Supper look with me here in chapter chapter 24 verse 8 It says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant. Now, if they didn't understand what was going on, Moses explains to them why he's throwing this blood upon them. He says, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, he's saying, You are committing before God Almighty. As he's committed to you in this covenant, to be with you and to draw near to you, you have made a covenant with the Lord to do all that he has commanded. Jesus says in the upper room, just hours before his crucifixion, as he's pointing to his sacrifice, this is the words he says. Listen, Jesus says this in Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. Why in the world would Jesus use this phrase, this is my blood of the covenant? Look at verse 8. Behold, the blood of the covenant. You see what this is? The Lord is saying, Jesus himself is saying, that when he went to the cross and shed his blood, there was an altar there, the cross. And the Lord's saying, I'm going to fulfill my side. And then as the church would live on, we would come and we would take of the table, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. And as we are taking it and receiving it and we're eating and drinking of this cup, we're saying, Lord, this is our end of the bargain. But, but, in the same way that there was an animal that was sacrificed for the sin of the people and their disobedience, when God looks at you and me by faith in Christ, he sees that blood. He doesn't see your blood. He sees Christ's blood. And he says, my end of the bargain is that if I see Christ's blood on you, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. Now, to doubt that is to doubt that God is going to fulfill his promise. Do you see how enduring that is? Do you see how glorious it is that whether Jesus will forgive you this past week and even this morning as you were driving here, isn't based on how you feel, but it's based on what he's done and what he said in his word. There is blood that you have on you, brothers and sisters. That is the blood of Christ. And when the Father looks to you, he says, that blood that you have received, and you have said, I'm going to obey and fulfill all the commandments you have not done. You deserve death, but Christ did fulfill all the commandments. He, he did exactly what they said they would do. Jesus Christ did all the words of the Lord, went to the cross, shed his blood, that we might have his righteousness. Now you think, that's a lot of complicated thinking. Is that, is that what the Bible says? In Hebrews chapter 9, Again, the, the writer of Hebrews is explaining what the blood of Christ does now that there's no longer goats and bulls and oxen to be slaughtered. Now we're, we're in the New Covenant, the New Testament. And it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater, listen to this, the greater and more perfect tent. Now, the tent's the tabernacle, the place where God's people would go, where the blood would be shed eventually. Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered, Christ entered once for all into the holy places. Where are these holy places? That's before God himself. Christ went not into just the tent that was made in the Old Testament, that was the tabernacle that was called the holy place, but Jesus went right into the very presence of God, the very holy place that truly is, not just a picture of it that was the tabernacle. He entered once for all into the holy place. How did he do that? Hebrews 9, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. In other words, Jesus didn't come into God's presence on the basis of the blood of goats and calves. Now, why would that make sense? Because in Exodus, everybody knows there's only one way to get to God, and that is through blood. The goats and calves and the oxen, the offerings. 
Jesus went into the very holy place of God, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Of his own blood. Christ entered into the very holy place of God by his own blood. Now, what did that do? Hebrews 9. By Christ entering into this holy place by the means of his own blood, it says this, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, we're saved because of this blood. We're redeemed. We're purchased by the blood of the Lamb. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the filed persons with ashes of the heifer and the sanctification um, of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, here's the point that the author's making, how much more will the blood of Christ do this? So he's saying if goats and bulls can do that in the Old Testament, how much more will the blood of Christ do this? He goes on and says in Hebrews chapter 9, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, Christ offered himself without blemish to God. And what did he do? Here it is. To purify our conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, it is the blood of Christ that we stand before God. And none other. Today we have the same glorious promise to come up to the Lord To come to God through our only mediator, Jesus Christ, who not only went into the heavens before the very presence of Almighty for us, but he shed his precious blood for us like a lamb without blemish or spot that we might draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and full assurance in Christ. These are Christ's terms. By faith, we come into the presence of God. By the cross work of Christ, we come into the presence of God. Our responsibility is to accept these by faith. This is exactly what it says in Romans 5 when it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access. How? By faith. Into this grace which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That was point number two. Point number three, and this will be quickly, we'll wrap this up. Point number three, the Lord's glory revealed. The Lord's glory revealed. All of these stipulations and terms God set forth. God's people then accepted and received these stipulations and terms. And they said, we will obey. They were washed with this blood on their garments and all over themselves. And what happened at that point? This is the most amazing, one of the most amazing verses in all of our Bible. Verse 12, it says, excuse me, verse 9, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, listen to this, in the verse 9, went up. And they saw God. It's amazing. They saw their God, the God of Israel. This was not, obviously, a full, clear display of the Lord's glory. Because we know that even Moses asked that he might see the Lord's glory in Exodus chapter 33, which we'll get to. And the Lord says, I'm going to allow you to see my backside. 
And the reason the Lord says he's going to allow him to see a concealed, screened vision of God is because in Exodus 33, verse 20, it says, For man shall not see me and live. But instead, what we find here seems to be very similar to what Isaiah saw in his vision. When Isaiah, you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah says he saw the Lord high and exalted, and it says, what did he see? The train of his robe. He didn't look into the face of God. He saw the train of his robe filling the temple. Here we see the same cloaked, the same um, screened, concealed vision of God. Glorious, radiant, amazing nonetheless, but not a full vision of who God was, would be or they would die. It says here in verse 10, And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. In other words, they saw his feet and what he was standing on. They saw his feet and what he was standing on. This is the partial display that the Lord granted them through all of these stipulations and terms. This is the opportunity they had to be able to see their God. And then finally what we see as God's revealing his glory is that he then lets them commune with him. He doesn't kill them, it says. In verse 11 it says, And he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In other words, he didn't slaughter them. He didn't kill them for for being in that portion of his presence. But instead, it says in verse 11, they beheld God and they ate and drank. Speaking of the communion that they have with the Lord. I'm reminded of the revelation of John as Christ is reproving his church and calling them to himself. He says in John 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what will the Lord do? I will come in to him. And eat with him and he with me. That's a promise of what the Lord says he will do. He will commune with his people. This intimate fellowship through faith in Christ's shed blood is what our Lord is calling you and me to this morning, brothers and sisters. He's not just calling us to obey commands. Hear me. We've been listening to command after command after command. It can so easily become overwhelming and burdensome when we think that the Christian life was about me doing all this stuff to please God. That is not the gospel. That's heresy. The gospel is that Christ has done everything. And we are to trust him and live by faith. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we long for this communion, for this fellowship with our Lord, our hearts will will long for obedience. We will desire to love our Lord and to live for him as he's called us to. I'll close with this verse. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, listen, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since all of these things are true, brothers and sisters, let us draw near with a true heart and with full assurance of faith. With our hearts, listen, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why should we hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering? The last line, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, read it later on today. This is what it says. This is why we can trust this. For he who promised is faithful. Let us pray.